please want to draw your attention to. Thanks, guys. First of all, it is uh, December 19th. If you lost track of time, only a few days left for Christmas. And if you order from Amazon, it's most likely going to be late. Okay. So, if you didn't know your Christmas cards out yet, just uh, save them for Valentine's Day or something. So I'm glad you're here. Those of you joining us online, I'm glad you're able to be a part of uh, worship together today. And a couple yeah, things just want to draw your attention to. One, uh, he's not able to be here today. I think he's online with us. Uh, Jim Boyd, today is his birthday. And so, uh, if you happen to have his number, you can text him and just tell him happy birthday. Jim, we all look up to you. Hold that one in my holster for a week. I promised them a corny joke this morning. Uh, care team. If you're part of the care team, just for five minutes right after the service, uh, Jim would just like to get together with you for head together on something real quick. You just go into the overflow room after the service and just have a quick uh, five-minute meeting. Um, Adorn table. You're going to meet this coming Wednesday at Rose House. In Roslyn, if you have any questions about what that is, Adorn Table, you can see Meg, you can see Roseanne, you can see Sarah, who are here today, and, uh, or you can reach out to Diane. One of those four could uh, help steer you in the right direction. That'll be this coming Wednesday at what time? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock at Rose House in Roslyn. If you happen to need directions or uh, anything, you can see one of those ladies and they can point you in the right direction. Uh, I wanted to uh, let you all know, if you didn't know already, that this past week, Kurt Daughtry's mom went home to be with the Lord, and uh, she's 90 and just loves the Lord, and what a sweet home going that is. Uh, but I, I don't think, no matter how old you get, no matter how old your parents are, uh, that was still his mom. And so that's a sad thing for him to just wrestle with that reality, and Kurt's feeling a bit under the weather this morning, so he's joining us online too. So Kurt, we're praying for you and your family, and uh, if you have a chance to reach out to Kurt, just let him know that you're praying for him, that would be great. Man, right now, it just seems like there's a lot of people in the body uh, feeling under the weather, one way, shape, or another. Uh, and so uh, I texted Kurt back yesterday and said, it seems like Satan and his minions are working overtime to try to discourage people at a uh, time of the year when we should all be feeling extra amounts of joy thinking about the reality of Christmas. So I pray that today we can pray against that discouragement, we can combat that, and we can we can have joy in our hearts, and we can leave here more joyful than even we came in because of what God already has planned to accomplish here in this place. We're grateful that you're here with us. I uh, just want to make one last announcement, and that is this Christmas Eve, this coming Christmas Eve on the 24th, we've lost track of time again, uh, we're going to have a candlelight Christmas Eve service here, and that will be at 6 o'clock. We'll be done by 7, and it'll just be a time of worship just to prepare our hearts. I have grown to absolutely love a Christmas Eve service. I went to it as a kid, and uh, my favorite part was that it was the one time a year my parents would let me play with fire inside church. And, uh, and so, uh, and I always had to make sure that my parents never let me sit behind my mom's husband because she always had tons of hairspray in her hair. And I mean, it was the 90s, so uh, I wasn't allowed to sit near her because my parents thought it was weird. Uh, so, anyway. Uh, I've grown to appreciate other things about our Christmas Eve service and time together in worship. And uh, one of those is just preparing my heart for the beauty of Christmas. And so Christmas Day, we wake up and we feel prepared. And that's because we've, we've done the work. And I pray that we can do that together. So this Christmas Eve, if you want to come, uh, the theme is wrap this one up.
just going to look at that, that big baby wrapped up in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger and, uh, and talk through that a little bit. We're going to sing together. We're going to light some candles. We're going to hear some reading. And we just look forward to just a, a, a time of worship where we can just get our hearts right and settled and uh, not think about how much food we have to prep the next day or how many people are coming over or whether the packages are wrapped or, or, or that everything's ready. Like we can pause from all of that get our hearts ready uh, through worship. So hopefully you can join us for that. That's this. We, we don't, we're not going to live stream that or anything, so if you can be here, great. If you can't, that's okay. Uh, we don't keep stringent attendance records, but uh, if you're looking for something to do on Christmas Eve, we'd love to have you join us for that. Um, I think that's all by way of announcements. This morning, uh, my friend Rob's going to come up and share testimony. Now, Rob is a football coach, so he probably gets real riled up. Uh, and uh, so at the end, if he asks you to cheer, don't be intimidated. Just do it. Scary guy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Rob, if you want to come on up and uh, share your story with us, we're really looking forward to hearing uh, your share with us who God has been to you. there also so I do a lot of public speaking in terms of you know standing in front of a classroom standing in front of a team um, and that stuff doesn't bother me uh, I can tell you this is a whole different level um, I don't know why but my nerves are extremely uh, high right now but um, so as I said my name is Rob and I've been a part of Journey for I guess going on about nine months Trying to think about the specific time that you know Luke right here uh, got me dialed in virtually, and you know, kind of once COVID you know starts to lighten up a little bit, uh, it's been about nine months since I've been coming here. So um, I really want to. I texted Adam this yesterday. This is a tremendous privilege for me to be able to do this, and you know, I really started thinking about like what is a testimony and what does it mean and. You know, for me, it kind of became very contextual with the time of the year that we're in right now. And I started liking it to like a Christmas gift. And I think we all remember like getting a gift when we're younger. And usually you get one that's like your favorite gift. And you can't wait to tell everybody about that gift or if it's clothes, you put it on and you wear it. And you can't wait to show everybody. And for me, like having the opportunity to give this testimony is really talking the greatest gift. The greatest gift that I've ever got, and that's the salvation of Jesus. Um, so that's the way I look at it, and you know I'm going to be very cognizant of your time, and you know I'm going to answer the questions that Adam provide, but I also think it's important that uh, you guys hear a little bit about what led me to this place, you know, nine months ago. And, and ultimately, really, it's not my story. It's the story of God and, and you know, the role that he's played in my life. So um, the best way that I could do that, and, and I thought, put a lot of thought into this, was really thinking about, like, you know, the years of my life as chapters of a book. And, you know, trust me, I'm going to give you a cliff notes version. 
Um, so, but like zero through 16, chapter zero through 16, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, in a Catholic church in Northeast Philly, and, um, you know, the best way I could describe my relationship with the Lord was, and I'm paraphrasing an author, uh, Mark Patterson, um, I was very living an inverted relationship with Jesus. I was asking Jesus to follow me, and I was fitting him in, into my life when it was convenient, and, um, you know, everything really changed for me at age 16, 17, um, and this is where things get a little difficult for me. Uh, I was walking home from school one day, and just out of the blue, I suffered, unbeknownst to me at the time, um, you know, I've obviously not get to this part of the story, uh, I suffered a severe panic attack on my way home. And I had no idea what it was, where it came from, why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Um, the only, the best description I can give you is it felt like I was under attack in my mind, and I thought that the only way to relieve myself of that situation was to end my own life. And certainly had zero desires to do that, and, uh, you know, that day, basically, it, it changed the course of my life. And, um, you know, I kind of went on for the next five years of my life, really kind of trying to just battle through that on my own very quietly because I had no idea what was going on in my life. Um, you know, and, you know, I kind of went through the next five years and, um, you know, used my, my faith and my, my, you know, my Catholic upbringing uh, you know, as a foundation, but still really didn't know Jesus. Um, and enter around age 22, I had graduated college, and, you know, I kind of went through, like, I guess the best way to describe it would be like a ceasefire situation where everything that was going on internally started to kind of dissipate a little bit. Um, and I, I really found my passion, which was coaching, and I think a lot of that had, you know, a lot to do with it. And, um, but this is where everything changed for me, and, and I, I went and took a graduate assistant job at Wesley College, which is in Dover, Delaware, and uh, Thursdays after practice, uh, there was an FCA chaplain who would come to practice, and he would talk to the team because they would do uh, Bible study Thursday night, and he would kind of just prep the team on you know, what they were gonna discuss, and you know, I would stand behind the players, and he would talk to the team, and he would, when he was talking to the team, for whatever reason, it felt like the only person he was talking to was me. And, you know, this happened like seven weeks in a row. And every time it was like, no, he, he's just talking to you. He's not talking to anybody else. And that's what it felt like. And so I finally went up to him and I said, hey, Randy, our coach is allowed to go to the Bible studies. And he said, um, you know, as excited as he was, he said, we would love you. And so I started going. And, um, you know, I just felt my heart being called. And I don't know how to describe it because it's just a supernatural feeling. And about three or four weeks later, we, we played a game out in Texas. And it was a Friday night, and we were in a hotel room, and there was about, you know, eight or nine of us in a room, probably half the size of this. And we were, you know, in the Word. And, and when he went to, you know, finish praying that night, um, he basically said a prayer, and he said, there's somebody in this room who wants to give their life to you. And I knew right away he was talking about me, and my heart knew it. 
And um, it's crazy. Like, I felt the battle in that very moment of, like, you know, because he was praying, stand up. Like, stand up. And I wasn't standing up, even though my heart, like, it was, it was a battle in that very moment. And, you know, I stood up. And, you know, that night I gave my life to, to Jesus. But I didn't, I still didn't know what that meant yet. Um, and this is where things kind of, you know, like where God's amazing work just comes into play. Um, at age like 26, I had moved around a little bit. I was coaching at Kutztown, and I was on my way home, and uh, I suffered another severe panic attack, very similar to the one that I went through. Um, and this time, it, it felt worse, though. It felt worse. And um, but there was a major difference this time, and, and you know, this time. Jesus was right in the middle of it. So what ended up transpiring over the next four to five years is I still, I was very quiet. I've never told anybody about this. Um, you know, I was five years diagnosed with OCD. Um, many of you know it as the people who wash their hands a lot, and, you know, um, but it's, it's a very, it's a mental illness that takes on the form of, you know, many different shapes and forms. And for me, it really boiled down to, I would, you know, I would, I still do, I deal with these intrusive thoughts. And they're, they're not my thoughts, but they come into my mind and because I'm, I'm obsessive about them, I can't let them go. And I look for certainty and that's where the compulsion comes in. And, um, you know, the intrusive thought for me is that going all the way back to the, the very first moment when I suffered my panic attack, I fear that I'm gonna lose control of my life and end my own life. And whether there's, you know, rationalness behind it, it doesn't matter because in my mind it feels real. And so for about six or seven years after I've come to know the Lord, I've prayed like over and over and over and fought this intensely internal battle about why won't you take this away from me? Why won't you take it away? I know you can. I know how powerful you are. And... Um, he never really gave me an answer, but he kept giving me scripture. And some of the scriptures that really like define this period of my life, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, like I just hung on to that over and over again. Like I know the plans, or I know the plans that I have for you is to give you a future, to give you hope. And, um, you know, I finally told my wife everything that was going on, and she was a major advocate for me going to get help. So I started, and I went and started talking to a Christian counselor. And uh, there was one point in the day that really kind of changed everything for me. And we sat down one day and drew a big circle. And he wrote the word fear in the middle of it. And he put me at the bottom of the circle. And he said, you keep trying to go around the circle. Like, you keep trying to get to the other side by going around it. And he said, God wants you to go right through it. But he doesn't want you to go through it alone. He wants you to invite him into the deepest parts of it so he can walk through it with you. And that changed everything for me. Um, and, you know, I, um, it was at that moment that my entire perspective changed in regards to my relationship with, with the Lord. And, you know, from that moment on, I, I really invited Jesus into the parts of my fear and it, 
it's indescribable to talk about how relentless he is in terms of his love for us and the grace that he just shows over and over and over again. Um, like these battles that I, that I continue to fight today are they're very real. And it really, it really, if I don't have Jesus, I'm not here. My life is dependent upon his, his spirit. And for what used to be what I thought was the biggest burden of my life, he has turned into the biggest blessing. Because I believe it's 2 Corinthians 7, like, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul's talking about the glory that he has on his side and, and like I prayed years for him to take this away from me and now I know why he didn't take it away from me because if he took it away from me my dependency on him would be it, it, it would go away because my flesh would, would walk away but the fact that he won't take it away from me my, my entire dependency is on Jesus I can't fight what I have alone and so what he has done in my life, he has taken the burden and turned it into the biggest blessing. So Adam had mentioned I'm a coach. So, you know, my compassion and my empathy for young individuals that are suffering from mental illness would not be the same that it is had I not gone through what I'd gone through, had I not experienced what I'd experienced, and had I not trusted and gave dependency on the Lord to be able to get me through and you know I'll end my story and kind of you know lead it up to where we're at now just to you know talk about ultimately how amazing God works in your life um, I had a player about you know seven weeks into the season after a game I you know I could just tell something was wrong and we've had many conversations up to this point struggling with some anxiety, but I knew he wasn't telling me everything. And he, I, I said to him, I said, son, are you okay? And he said, no, I'm not okay. And uh, I said, well, what's wrong? Did you tell me what's wrong? And he said, I have these thoughts that, about killing myself. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Is that something you want to do? And he said, no. I don't. He said, but I don't know where they're coming from, and I don't know how to get rid of them. And at that moment, like, you look back and what I suffered from and, and what I went through, um, like, for me to be able to share with him my story about how God has gotten me through the, the most difficult of times and ultimately <coughs> where my strength comes from. Like, that's not, there's nothing accidental about that. And it just, again, reinforces over and over again, you know, for people who don't think God is alive. He is so alive. And he is so present and so personal and intimate and close in our lives. And at the time, 
we don't we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through, but I can look back and say it makes complete sense as to why I went through what I went through. And at the end of the day, I'm his vessel, and I just pray that you know he can use me in a way that you know ultimately you know moves forward his kingdom. So um, that kind of leads me to where I'm at today, and and you know. I've been, my wife and I have been living in Bucks County for about three years now and haven't been able to find a church. And, you know, Luke, we ended up moving across the street from Luke. And, uh, you know, we became good friends and, you know, he was telling me about the church. And, you know, some of the questions that Adam asked, like, what have we learned about the character of God? You know, I think what being here in the, in the, the nine months has taught me is that, like, God is, is still performing surgery on my heart, and like being a coach, I'm very like performance driven, uh, and I think that I need to perform well to God to earn His grace. And He's just like ripping that notion apart, you know, since I've been here. And it's just like you know, He's pouring out His grace, like He's just ridiculous radical grace on me. And you know, I think that continues to shape and mold me as I, as I walk out these doors and I go to my classroom and I go to my team, you know, and I see individuals that are struggling. Um, it's just like this grace. And, you know, I learned that and, and that is so evident in this church. And so like what I think the last question Adam asked was, you know, what makes you want to be a part of what God is doing here? Um, I thought about that question a lot and it really boiled down to one word, authenticity. I think the individuals that are sitting in this room, in my experience so far, are just extremely authentic in their love for Jesus uh, and, and seeking the truth in the gospel. And um, like that type of pursuit is ultimately, I believe, what we need in this world because like we don't save people, we can't bring you know healing to people Jesus can right and, and what we can do is best represent who he is and let him live through us and the only way that happens is if you just kneel at the cross and say like it's not me like empty me more of you and that is so present in this church and you know I feel that every time I walk in whether it's a, a Bible study or a um, you know a, uh, a Sunday service so um, you know, I think I'll just end with this. Like, I really enjoy learning about leadership. Um, I study it a lot. And, uh, you know, I believe, you know, last question, what excites you about where Jeremy is headed? You know, I believe the church has as authentic as a leader uh, in Adam and Meg. And, um, you know, I think, you know, we choose to follow. Leaders don't pick people and follow them, right? Leaders end up leading because people decide that they want to follow them. And, um, you know, to me, the authenticity, the compassion, and, you know, the search for the truth in this church, and then wanting to carry that out, you know, on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, ultimately is what excites me about where, where this body is going. And on a personal level, um, you know, I just think my wife and I have found a place where we can kind of drop our roots
God, thank you so much for this guy, for how you write stories. We just thought that uh, the fixer-upper that he and Selma purchased would be across the street from someone who would become a dear friend and uh, someone who they would, uh, they would find a, a church body to be a part of around the same time. God, we're grateful for how you do that. Thank you so much for us having the opportunity as an audience to rob telling your story and his life. Thankful for his life. We thank you for his influence. We thank you for the places that he's choosing to infuse the gospel at every opportunity. We're thankful that uh, you led him and Selma to be a part of this community. Lord, may you richly bless and continue to mold and shape him and her as they walk this road that you put them on. I'm thankful for your grace and rich supply. And I pray that your story written through Rob's life would continue to inspire and grow and allow people to see you and him more and more. Amen. Okay, so uh, we've been uh, going through our Advent series shape and mold us all the more 
to this one thinking like, this is, everything's gonna go back to normal. This is gonna be the, the Christmas of anticipation and we're not gonna have the heaviness. And man, I don't know about you, but our week has just been heavy. There's been small losses like having to cancel or postpone things or there's empty chairs um, this morning where so many in our body are sick and unable to be here this morning. So there's those little disappointments, but we also suffered um, loss of family members uh, this week, and the heaviness has been so palpable that I started to lose my joy. Um, but I realized over the past several days that so much of it came from me wanting to find my significance, um, but also even just the significance and the joy of Christmas um, in the festive gatherings and in the full, vibrant church services of Christmas, and God just keeps reminding me of the upside-down way that he came. That it was small, that it was messy, that it was poor, and it was painful. So then why do we have joy? What is the significant, what does make Christmas significant? What does give us, what's worth rejoicing this Christmas? And I keep thinking back to our Romans study, if you've been with Adorner Armor, we're studying through the book of Romans, and the first two chapters are heavy, and we've seen our depravity and the weight of our sin. We've seen how worthy we are of judgment that, that is right, the seriousness of our sin and of the judgment that we fully deserve. And I was reminded of this quote by Tim Chester. He said, it should not be a surprise that a loving God would judge, but it should be a surprise that he would find a way to forgive. This is the beauty of Christmas. This is the best surprise. That this God that had every right, that we were fully worthy of judgment and punishment, he surprised us with a way to forgive us and to make us right with him. Jesus, this baby, was born, this is the way that God would reconcile us back and bring us into relationship with him. And this is the only way that that Romans 1 and 2 judgment can pass over us. What this baby came to do at Christmas. Live like we couldn't and die like we should have. So this is what Christmas is. This is what the baby came for. This is what's so significant, is that we were worthy of judgment. We were God's enemies, and he came so that we could be made right with God. And maybe you've sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing a Thousand Times, but the lyrics ring so true that um, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. This is what we rejoice in this morning. This is why we have joy. And think about that as we sing this together.
Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day. Um, and as we look forward, um, well, thinking about and learning about your birth, Lord, as we came to this world as a baby, just to end up dying on the cross for us, Lord, and you're perfect. I just pray that you open our hearts um, as we listen to the word this morning. Amen. I think that's on page 557 in the Bible in front of you if you want to find it a little easier. Uh, I don't know if 557 actually has a page number on it, but the one before it does, and that one, surprisingly, is 556. So, um, you guys are just digging my humor today. I love it. All right. We'll just keep moving right along. All right. So, uh, Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 2. Last week we looked at the birth of Christ. Now, as a, as a point of reference, you usually look at the birth of Christ in the week leading up to Christmas. Uh, but God had other plans for us here, and, uh, and I think it's important for us to just till, to let God till the, the, uh, the soil of our heart to just see Christmas through a different lens. And I think that's what we're attempting to do here. I think, honestly, that's what Matthew is attempting in his letter. He's helping us see Jesus through the lens of genealogy. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that Jesus was promised as the Messiah. That's He was promised to us, and there were specific things that were promised along with that, that the Messiah, this rescuer, the Redeemer, would come through specific family lines. And this whole letter that Matthew pens is all a proof text of Jesus' genealogy. Jesus did come from that line of people, and that he did do all the things that the stories are said about him. Now, uh, we know that we have a tendency to create a more palatable or sellable story, don't we? They're called fishing stories. Anyone have anyone in their family that tells fishing stories? Maybe you're the offender. If you didn't raise your hand, you're in the family probably tell fishing stories. You know what a fishing story is, right? We always pick up my brother because he catches more fish than he goes by himself. Uh, and, and I mean, I'm not taking any away, but he's a really, really good fisherman. But if we go with him, he catches 12. If he goes by himself, he catches like 35. Uh, it's amazing how that happens. Uh, but fishing stories are you catch a fish with your friends, and it's this big, and by the time you get home, that fish is this big, and by the time 20 years have passed, it's this big. It was a world record. Nobody got a picture of it. It's crazy. You should have been there. It was amazing, right? We do that. We, uh, we, we take stories and then we try to make those stories more palatable. We exaggerate. Uh, we, we change the details. Now, I know I'm going to be very vulnerable and honest with you this morning, and it's probably going to come to a shock, as a shock to any of you. But what I tend to do in my, when I find myself potentially embellishing something, it's not to exaggerate the claim to make me the star of the story. It's because I'm telling a story, and some part of how I'm telling the story is getting you to laugh. So I'm just going to camp out on that story for a while, and I'm just going to keep adding unnecessary details to the story, because if you're laughing at me, I'm just going to keep on going. And the story, which is this long, becomes this long when I tell it, as long as you keep laughing. I'm just going to keep talking. Okay? 
my wife is like, amen. <laughs> so that's what we do. We try to take something and then we make it more palatable. We try to tell a story. And over the years since Jesus was born, we have done this to the story of Christ. Last week we talked about that. One of the points was God doesn't need us to edit his story. God doesn't need us as the editors in the story that he's trying to tell. Something my wife pointed out to me, and I thought it was important enough to say, is this. Hold on a second. I don't know uh, how many women in here have given birth, but I don't know how many of you, after you gave birth, sort of minutes later, A, the baby was that huge. <laughs> um, <laughs> Christian was pretty big. And two, look at how nicely she is dressed. Her makeup is perfect, and she's kneeling. I've been in the room when my wife has delivered five babies, and never once after it was born did she have any desire to be in this posture. <laughs> For a long time. And so we take the story, and we try to make it so that it's like this beautiful picturesque, you know, a silent night. It was so quiet and so gentle. And the baby came out so quickly. It wasn't even, there wasn't even any pain. It was just amazing. And that's the way we try to think about it. We even try to make a barn seem nice. We try to make a barn, a cave, seem like, oh my gosh, I looked at that manger. I would that. That's amazing. You know, those guys are probably pretty comfortable. Animals tend to produce a lot of heat. It's probably wasn't that cold. I'm sure someone cleaned up the barn before they came in. These are parts of the Christmas story we don't put any thought into. Somewhere along the line, we have taken the story of Jesus' birth, and we've made it something that makes us feel good. That has become the point. The point of Christmas is to make me feel good. Here's the ironic twist. The story of Christmas should make you feel good. It should make you feel better than you've ever felt in your entire life. <coughs> this week's passage tends to be uh, treated similarly, by the way. We tend to take this, this story and we, we mold it, and we shape it, and we make it what we want it to say. We even create titles and things for these characters that just aren't accurate, nor are they there. So Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is where we're going to be. Let's read that. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, and in some versions, that, that word starts off in ESV, now, but in some versions it says, Behold. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, 
who will shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through and look at some general observations that we see here. Just general overview, some of the things that are happening, and then we're just going to look at some of the things that stand out to us, or should stand out to us in this. But I want to show how Matthew starts this off. He starts off this section with the words, now. So Jesus is born. And he's, the last thing that we read is in the last verse, of verse 25, it says, and he is named and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and then he says this, Behold. Now, I don't know if that word gets used commonly anymore, but if someone was telling you a story, and they said, So we went to the lake, and we threw our lines into the lake, and behold. <laughs> it would get your attention, right? Behold, standing before me was Bigfoot, or whatever, right? Like, if someone says, behold, it should get your attention. Basically, what this means is, do I have your attention? The word behold means observe something remarkable. Behold. And Matthew is doing something here with his language, with his words. One thing that we'll see in the book of Matthew is, is he's calculated with his words purposeful with them. And when he uses this one, it's the same thing. He's about to reveal a part of the story of Jesus that he finds to be vitally necessary in our understanding of who Jesus is as the Redeemer, as the Messiah, as the one who came to be our rescuer. He says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now listen, Mary and Joseph would not have expected this. Wise men, or as some refer to them in other translations even, the word magi. Magi means this. The word magi means pagan astrologer. Pagan astrologer. It's where we get the English word magic from. We get the word magic from calling these three men the magi, who are pagan astrologers. They knew the prophecy, but they also watched the stars. They were the ones that, you know, if you called Dionne Warwick at, the, at like 3 o'clock in the morning, you couldn't sleep. The psychic network, you might get a hold of one of these guys. Does anyone not know who Dionne Warwick was? Okay. If you haven't been up till 3 o'clock in the morning and seen Dionne Warwick on TV, you never have to sleep. <laughs> so the English word for magic comes from this, magi. Now, what we've done is we've said, we three kings, right? We three kings of Orient are. Like, we, we've turned it into this, like, beautiful story about guys traveling far just to see a baby. And there are elements of that that are very true, but nowhere in this 
are they referred to as kings, nor are they kings. They are not royalty in any way, shape, or form. And, little pet peeve of mine, but it's biblical, they were not at the birth of Jesus. They were not at the birth of Jesus. I jokingly tell Meg, when we set up a nativity, I want to set the wise men up in proximity to their size, how long it would take, like around two years, for them to get to wherever the nativity is set up, because that seems more biblical. Now notice in this passage, real quick, it says that they, when they entered into the house where they found the child, they did not walk into a barn and find a baby. They did not walk into a cave or any place where the baby was born and find a newborn. They walked into a house, which means there's some kind of transition between where Jesus was born and where they're actually at now. So just a little biblical accuracy there. And there weren't kings. These are not three kings. It's a familiar song, but it's not accurate. These guys would be more uh, sorcerers or wizards by what we would call this, a magi. The way we picture it is these guys were the guys that uh, whenever the Old Testament says that you shouldn't uh, seek out age-old wisdom that comes from the sky, like whenever Elijah is on the mountain and he's being challenged to bring down fire from heaven, the ones that they consult sorcerers, that's the same concept. But these guys knew the prophecy. They had watched the sky. They knew the prophecy had said that when a star appears in the sky, that that means that the Redeemer, this Messiah, was born. And whether they believed him to be God or the Messiah or not, their studying of the stars made them curious enough to travel a long way on camels to find him. And the first place they went, whenever they got close to where the star was resting, was a castle. And they went to a castle because that's where culture houses its royalty. Culture always houses its royalty in a castle. When I was a kid, the show that I remembered was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. You remember that? Robin Leach. You remember that? Does anyone not know what I'm talking about? Okay, you guys are on <laughs> okay, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was the precursor to MTV's Cribs. Is that better, Andrew? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was this little uh, respite where you would you would turn on the TV and see how the other side lives. You would envy their yachts and their gold faucets in their bathroom. Why they need those, I don't know, but I was like, oh man, those are cool. That shower has seven shower heads. Oh, what I do to be rich. You know, like when you're a kid, you know, like champagne wishes and caviar dreams, and as a kid, you're like, that sounds awesome until you try it. You're like, that's disgusting. Just give me a candy bar, right? <laughs> I've never had caviar to this day. I've never buy those things. But that's where royalty is housed in Who needs all that space? The first thing my wife and I think of stuff like, who cleans this? 
Six kids sharing one bathroom, you know, those kind of things. Six people, not six kids. There's not two children in the whole So here's what they do they travel to where the star is going to rest, and they're looking for what the prophecy says would be royalty, and that's where their mind tells them. Their mind tells them to look for royalty where royalty resides, and that is in a that's where culture always houses its kings. Is in the big and the bright and the large and the ornate. Culture always goes big for royalty. Now when they get there and they share the news, what we see is a little bit of King Herod's inferiority. He starts to wonder, what, what are they talking about? Who is this? And in verse 8, we see a little bit of him being threatened by this. And later on, we're going to see proof that he actually was. In verse 8, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. Now, if you're reading that, you're like, I'm not buying it. You're, you don't want to worship him, right? Like, there should be red flags coming up everywhere. And apparently there were. So King Herod is threatened by this news that they have come to see a king. And then what happens is God, by his infinite grace, leads these guys to Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that after listening to the king, small k king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. These are pagan guys. These are guys that do not believe that God is God. They believe you can get your answers from the sky. And yet God is so gracious that he brings them to worship. He uses them. And God guides them straight to Jesus. And what do they do? They bring gifts. And they worship him. It says, when they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They brought gifts with them. This was a calculated move on their part. Now, some might say, why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And there have been sermons that, the years over that have talked about the, symbol, the symbolism of these three things. And that might be true. But that's reading into the text a little bit. Here's what we know. Here's what we know. Look at Isaiah chapter 60. If you want to go back, you can. If not, I think it's going to be on the screen. You can read it yourself up there. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 through 6. A nation shall come to your light. Remember, these guys are not from where they're at. They have traveled. A nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This too was prophesied. Whether these men knew that prophecy and chose their gifts accordingly, or whether they chose their gifts and God in his sovereign wisdom and sovereign planning knew exactly what they were sent to bring. This is not a symbolic gift necessarily. This is to fulfill God's already permanent will. That's amazing. Even to the minute small details that they would come from far, they would ride camels, they would bring frankincense, they would bring gold. The last thing we see in this passage is they were warned in a dream. They were warned in a dream. And their warning was, don't go back to Herod, don't tell him where the baby is, subvert that, and go back to your own country in a different way. Now, we don't know what that dream consisted of, we don't know whether an angel came and told them, or Jesus himself, uh, or, or we don't know exactly. What, they, what we do know is that it was, it was uh, convincing enough that that's exactly what they did. Now, there's a whole lot in these 12 verses that we can look at. But these are some of the things, three things that stood out to me as I studied this that I thought we should chew on a little bit this morning. As we go into the Christmas day, traditions and the things this week that we're going to do as families and as friends and neighbors, the, the, maybe the, the things that you've been doing for a lot of years. Maybe you'll travel. Maybe people will travel to you. I think these are the things that we should think through as it pertains to God's word this morning. One is this. We shouldn't have a narrow view of who can come to Jesus. We shouldn't have a narrow view Magi are marked by God's own word in several spots by one word, sinners. When you look through the Old Testament, and I, I look, there's at least 12 different passages throughout the Old Testament. If you want me to, I can give them to you after the message. That, that condemn, directly condemn magic. In the forms in which these guys practice it sorcery and wizardry and the, the way that they were looking at the sky to give them answers. The scriptures in the Old and the early parts of the New Testament condemn this. There's, the scriptures tell us that it's the antithesis of finding real answers. Now listen to me carefully. I don't think that what this is saying is that if you read or watch Harry Potter you're going to go to hell. There are people that take it that far that's ridiculous. But what this is saying is that the way that these guys made their faith decisions, the way that these guys made their direct decisions, and the, all the information they were pulling down, and, and then pushing that out to say, hey, we, we looked here, we found answers. And whenever Daniel 
whenever the king in the book of Daniel has bad dreams and they're terrifying him, they call the wizards and, and they call, and, and Daniel condemns that whenever he gets the real answer what the dream is. Here's why I say that. Every place that they are categorically, quote unquote, condemned, they are referred to by one word, sinners. as the king of kings. These guys travel the whole way to a palace, look a king in the eye, and say, where's the king? There's a baby that's been born. And according to everything we've seen, he's the real king. That is why Herod is vexed. Something is informing this. And when they get to Jesus, they see him face to face. What do they do? They drop to their knees and they worship him. Now, I don't know exactly the, the place of residence that Mary and Joseph and this baby are living in at the time, but I can guarantee it is not as ornate as what they had just left to find this baby for this child. When they saw him, they worshipped him. I think we skirt past this part of the story, or we make it so that these royal kings came, because it makes this part of the story more palatable to us. It erases a lot of the things we don't want to talk about. We don't want to talk about how God used three sorcerers from the, from the Far East to come in on camels to worship and defy a king. We don't want to talk about that. It produces too many questions. Questions we don't have answers to. And as Christians, if you ask me a question, I don't have an answer to, I'm uncomfortable. And I don't like to be uncomfortable as a Christian, so let's just talk about things that make us all comfortable. See, Christ came as the king of kings, and these guys, somewhere in them, knew it. Now, I don't know if there was a heart transformation this day. I don't know. I do know that it would be really hard to drop to your face and worship a real in-person face-to-face Jesus and lose exactly the same as he did. According to what Rob shared about his life, that's how it works. We meet Jesus face-to-face and it changes us. I don't know what happened to these guys after they left. I don't know where they ended up. But here's what we do in the church. We tend to think that for these guys to come to Jesus, They have to relinquish their sorcery first. Clean yourself up, and then you can come to Jesus. That's what we've done with the Christmas story. Make sure that you're right before the Lord before you come to the Lord. Make sure that you're wearing your Sunday best. Make sure that you're wearing the most ornate clothes you have. Make sure that you don't have any sin in your life. Make sure that everything's cleaned up, and then you can come to Jesus. And then you can go to church. And God reminds us through all of this, through these three guys traveling all this way, we get reminded that what matters to God is for us to worship Him. 
don't get to judge. We don't get to look at the person walking in the door and make make our definition what they need to do before they meet Jesus. We don't get that responsibility. And if you're living out of that, it needs to be condemned for it with arrogance and sin. That's under Jesus' name. We shouldn't have a narrow view of who can come to Jesus. Anyone can come to Jesus. And if anything being stripped away from the American church right now, it's that. That narrow view of who can come to Jesus. We should be doing the hard work of clearing the path. Clearing the path and being the bright star that when people find us, they find Jesus. When people find us, they find a real Jesus. And they see him, and you know what they do? They worship him. God has put his light in us. Which leads me to my second point. There are two things that happen when Jesus comes into our story, one is it leads us to worship, or two, it threatens our kingdom. Those are the only two things that happen. It's one of those two. Meeting a real Jesus will either lead us to worship or it'll threaten our kingdom. They went to the king, like I said earlier, and they just wanted to see the king, the real king. And the king, King Herod, he feels threatened by this. He makes some horrendous, tragic decisions after this, which we're going to look at in the next couple weeks. You know, the old hymn says, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Are we building kingdoms for ourselves? Or are we building his kingdom? Because those are the only two options we have. Herod had the palace. I'm sure he had the power. And I'm sure he had the money. He had the notoriety. And if people didn't like him, they at least feared him enough to pretend that they did. But when this real king came into his storyline, it threatened did whatever he felt he needed to do to keep his kingdom from crumbling. Are we building kingdoms for ourselves? Are we going to worship Jesus for him being the actual author and perfecter of all things? The good news of who he is? Or will we be threatened by his existence tearing down what we worked so hard to build? Here's the third thing. Jesus comes to provide a light. Like that star that guided the Magi to right where he was. Jesus comes to provide that. One of the most hopeful things in Scripture that I have found at least is in Revelation chapter 21. Now, I want you to I want you to follow along. It'll be on the screen, but I want you to hear it. And I want you to picture it as I read it. Revelation 21, 22 through 26. This is a vision that John gets. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. 
and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. You see, one day, the only light this world will ever need will be the light emanating out of the throne of God. And you know, church, where that light resides right now. It's where his spirit resides, by the way. And that's in his church. I want to remind you some really, really good news. This is good news for me. Romans 5, verse 8 says this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, just like the Magi, Christ died for us. One more. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. I believe it's up there. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christmas is about God's grace, not our deservings. We know more than the Magi did. We know more. They came to see a child that was the promised Redeemer. We see a risen Christ who, while we were still sinners, while we were still living in darkness, while we were still in that dark place of sin, which maybe some of us are sitting in right now, Christ sent his son into this world to live a perfect existence. He did what we couldn't do. He obeyed all the law. The holy standard that was set in scripture for there to be a bridge built between us and God could only be fulfilled if someone obeyed all the law. They became our all-atoning sacrifice. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The reason these men came and fell at the face and worshipped a child was because the prophecy said he was born for that purpose. That's why I believe Scripture tells us that Mary took all of these things and treasured them in her heart. mom, she had to carry that with her her whole life. We have no reason not to come worship. We have no reason to, to feel like our kingdoms are being threatened. Because as you'll see in the story of Herod, when we have that posture, we make really bad decisions, tragic decisions, 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still living like the Magi, maybe not in the specifics, while we were in darkness, incredible darkness, no matter what we grab for, no matter what we strive for, no matter what we take upon ourselves, no matter what the church has convinced us is true, that isn't true because it's not found in God's word, no matter what people have done to us or said to us or said to culture in the name of Christianity, what we see in God's word is what's true. And what God's word says is that those who walk in darkness have been offered a magnificent and glorious light. That is the story of Christmas. And it should lead us all Light has rest for us to light up the whole world. Please pray with me. God, thank you for being the treasure. Thank you that this year at Christmas we can remember that uh, we don't have to walk or live or be in darkness anymore. That while we were still sinners, while we were still in darkness, you, you came and you died for us. Light of the world. The light to light up the whole world.
light has come into this world to bust through the darkness. And there's not any amount of darkness or heaviness that can ever compete with one little flicker of light. You have come to bring light into the darkness. There's a couple things here, God. I pray that you would help us to see that light, be drawn into it, and then come into the earth. And when that light fills us, which it will, that we would be that true beacon to a watching and hungry and desperate world to see an authentic Jesus, not the brand that's been created, not the ways that the story's been embellished or wrongly portrayed. God, there has been some real and lasting and awful damage done to this world in the name of the church. And I grieve for that and I confess it and I ask that you would help us to see past that messing. If that's not you, you have come to be the light to that darkness. And when that light fills us, other people can be led to you through the light you've put in us. So now may the God of brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Merry Christmas. Have a good week.